0: we estimate that it was a 100 to 110 foot rope uh, above the trees and but we didn't know that i mean we uh it was so dark and foggy that you couldn't even see the end of the rope
1: welcome back to the show we are officially in season 2 this is episode 23 and today we are very excited to be joined alongside Dr. Tony Brooks after enlisting in the US Army in 2003 at the age of 21 Dr. Tony Brooks attended and graduated infantry and airborne school, followed by the four-week Ranger Indoctrination Program, officially checking into the 2nd Ranger Battalion in Fort Lewis, Washington in September of 2004. He deployed to Eastern Afghanistan in April 2005, based at Bagram Airfield. His first mission was Operation Red Wings 2. Tony subsequently deployed to the Ramadi region of Iraq in 2006 to 2007. He is now owner and operator of a chiropractic clinic and creator of objective, healthy, a healthy lifestyle, social venture to improve the health of veterans. He was featured on a Discovery Science Channel episode of Black Flies Declassified in a Smithsonian air and space article as a subject matter expert on Operation Red Wings and is also featured in the backbone docu-series. Real stories, real heroes for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast.
2: Hey, Tony, how's it going?
0: Uh, another beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest in Chaz. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Well, actually, this time of year is like perfect. That's I, I remember really going out to Seattle and it would be like 90 degrees, 95 sometimes in the summer. So you guys have that short window where it's just
0: beautiful weather and then rain for like seven months. Yes, we're not going to talk about that, but we'll talk about how a few weeks ago it was 110. Oh, geez. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But it's great right now.
2: Which is crazy because I know in Washington, a lot of places that I live never had AC. So the people out there are frying. Like when it gets into the upper 80s, 90s, and then rarely does it ever hit 100. But the fact that it did, I'm sure. Yeah, that's insane. I'm sure people were losing their minds.
0: Yes. Actually, a lot of people did. Did die from that. It was like 20-something oh, really? people. Really? Yeah, just terrible. heat stroke? Yeah, yeah heat stroke. Man, Old man. people in their apartments with no AC. Yep. 112 man. it got to. Jeez. Yeah, that's you
2: got to gotta keep up on people when uh, when something like that's a freak occurrence. Keep up with mm-hmm. uh, your elderly and make sure to check in on them. Mm-hmm. I, uh, my brother-in-law sent me a picture of his thermostat, and it only it doesn't have a third digit on his thermostat. And so it just said 99 on it. And then he had his kitchen thermometer out next to it and it showed 107. And he was like, This is the inside of my house right now. That's crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, um, listen, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on today. Um, I know you have a, a book that you recently put on pre sale uh, or on pre order. And uh, it's coming out this August, August 10th. It's called uh, Leave No Man Behind. And it's the perspective of a young army ranger. Going to rescue um, during Operation Red Wings two, uh, the rescue mission for those that were shot down during Operation Red Wings mm-hmm. and uh, the Navy SEALs that you know were were killed in action and then um, later found out Marcus Luttrell was out there and uh, so they went through the rescue. So we're gonna dive a lot into the book, um, but we want to first talk a little bit about your your background and, and really what drew you to become an Army Ranger.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a weird situation. You know, I was, I was not from a, you know, overly military family. I was uh, middle-class America, Northern California. I was a good student, kind of a nerd. Uh, I played sports. Uh, I went off to college in 2001 and was my, probably my first few weeks there on campus at university of Arizona in Tucson, 9, mm. 11. Uh, mm. So that just absolutely changed my life. I, I went from, I'm not sure what I want to do here in school to I'm going to go fight a war. And I left college and followed kind of Pat Tillman. Um, there was a couple other, you know, factors, I would say black Hawk down was a huge factor. Mm -hmm. Um, but mostly Pat Tillman being that he was from Arizona was, I mean, anytime you turn on the TV in Arizona, there's Pat. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's crazy. I remember
1: that time frame, and it, and it, you mentioned Black Hawk Down. Like I remember, that's what that was the movie that kind of hit close to me, where I was like really interested in like Rangers and finding out about them. And I remember Dan and I used to talk about it quite a bit when that movie came out, and then he went on to you know become a Ranger. But I can see that that was a big motivating factor on the side of nine eleven for a lot of, of men and women too.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget it that morning when I turned on my TV in my dorm room. Um, I was actually getting ready to go to the gym and I just, I, it was not too long after that, that the little man, you know, jumping off the side of the building mm-hmm. and like, that was it for me. That, that's what I needed to see, uh, to drive me to action. I mean, yeah. if someone is, you know, that low, that was their only choice or that was the best choice for them at the moment. Was burn I mean, alive I right was now. angry. Yeah. I was really angry.
2: Yeah, it impacted a lot of people in a lot of ways and just witnessing it firsthand is something that I think, you know, a lot of Americans didn't see until, you know, probably the, the time before that was Pearl Harbor. And mm-hmm. so for people to see that firsthand and on national TV. I remember watching it too and yeah. how many times the cameras had to cut away or go to a different scene or sometimes they just couldn't catch it in time. And so you, you literally saw people die before your eyes and I don't yeah. think, you know, that has happened To the American public.
1: And not even to get too far, but I remember they, I think they've honestly cut out all this footage from the news now and you can't find it anywhere. But I remember when they were filming it live. I mean, it was on 24 seven for like Mm -hmm. weeks. But I remember like when it was first happening, they had people that were like, what are those gunshots? Like, are there people firing? And they were like, no, those are bodies hitting the pavement. Mm -hmm. And it was like every like five to 10 seconds. Yeah. And I remember just hearing that and I was like, whoa, like something big is happening. And this is just crazy. Yeah, Yeah. same
0: feeling. I mean, we were different places in the world. We had the same exact feeling, you know Something's not something's not right about this other than obviously people jumping to their death Mm -hmm. But I think underlying factor you knew that man, this is much bigger than this thing. I'm seeing on TV Yeah, yeah now we know
2: Yeah, and uh you know, I, I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, um, but what was the, I guess, the, the reaction from your parents, um, you know, once you decided, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving college, I am absolutely joining the military and I'm going to go fight?
0: Uh, they were, I would say, surprised <laughs> is an understatement. <laughs> um, I never had any inkling that I was going to join the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so to them, it was a shock. And I just remember my father, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't negative about it, but he was like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you really sure? I mean, you need to think about this. This is, this is not an emotional decision. You know, at that age, I was 19 years old. um, Everything's emotional. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That's all you do. And so I did, I actually took his advice, believe it or not. uh, And I waited through the end of that school year to make, a Final decision, but to be honest, I had already made up my mind. Yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. kind of going through the motions
2: What was that like especially knowing like you you mentally were motivated and, and checked in you were going you were doing it hundred percent but then really early in those first few months, you know, you saw Like the news footage of objective rhino the rangers jumping into Afghanistan. Yeah. You saw um, Everything that was progressing in Afghanistan and slowly getting there like did that? amp you up more or were you kind of like wow this this is really a, a reality check
0: Yeah I mean I I I was clearly not focused on school I mean I was a you know 3.5 student most of my life mm. so mm. pretty good and in college I I think my first semester I ended up getting like a 2.0 or below wow. Like I I was not I was not there I was checked out and that was obvious when you saw my grades and I've never <laughs> since then I've never had a you know a semester that bad, so um it was clear that i wasn't wasn't really there. I was there physically, but not mentally,
1: yeah, you and I you and I did opposite. I graduated with like a one point eight out of high school, went into part time college for about four or five months, had almost a four 0, and then I was like, yeah, I'm out, I'm leaving Wow, <laughs> <laughs> just to prove that you could do it, <laughs> basically to prove to myself that I'm not stupid that I just didn't care about high school, and I was going to like an art school for college, which if anybody knows art schools, they charge like an arm and a leg to go to. And I was like, I don't want to be in debt $170,000 at the end of this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds like a bargain compared to what my school costs. <laughs> Probably but, for yeah, a lot of people. But, but yeah, I mean, that is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So um, once you did start going through the process, and and you knew you hundred percent wanted to be an Army Ranger, like what was it like going through those initial months and everything, going through uh, basic training, Airborne School, RIP, and uh, and especially being there in RIP when everybody knows, hey, all the battalions are getting spun up and deploying now. Um, mm-hmm. What were, what was that process like?
0: Um, again, my mind was made up. I I was going to war. Like I knew I was going to war. That's why I signed up. So for me, it was honestly the whole process between basic and through rip, it was like, you have to kill me to get me (laughs) to not go to where I want to go. And that was kind of my mentality the whole time is no one's stopping me. The only thing that's stopping me is if you know, you you take off my legs or, you know, take me out. That's really it.
1: That's crazy, like just that mental state. But so, why special operations? Why not just, you know, going in the
0: standard army and and doing that? Uh, I'm stubborn. I mean, when I want something, <laughs> I usually go get it. And, that's, and I think it, that's true with end. most guys in battalion, if if you know them, they're they're extremely stubborn. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think it, <laughs> it's pretty funny when you get those groups of guys together. But um, yeah, it was just it was just. I think it was the headspace. Really, is I'm doing it, and no one's stopping me.
1: I think most people too, when they think of special operations, they kind of know that that's like the first guys in and out, you know, so you probably knew if I want to fight, if I want to go to war, that's where I need to be.
0: Yeah. And I also had this, you know, you know, I'm a very analytical kind of type of guy. So I was like, well, you know, yeah, they're first in, but they're also the most highly trained. They're the, mm-hmm. I mean, they're the, they're the top of their game, right? Mm-hmm. So why would I not want to be with those guys? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually right. the safest is in my opinion is spec ops. Yeah. We're in the most shit, so to speak, but I felt the safest, honestly, I would have felt yeah. unsafe in, the, in anywhere else.
2: Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's funny when I, uh, cause I, I've told the story multiple times, but I didn't tell my mom for a long time what I was doing. Like I didn't tell her what Rangers did or any of that. Uh, <laughs> but when I, when I finally did break the news, I think it was after like probably my third or fourth deployment, something like that. And, uh, I told her that. That's the way I broke it to her. I was like, listen, I know this seems crazy, but in special operations, especially in in 2nd Range Battalion or in the Range Regiment period, you don't go to objective unless you know what your target is and you have all the assets in the world at your disposal. Mm. Like, yes, there have been a few, very, very few fringe cases where that has not been the case, but 99.9% of the time you have all the assets, uh, you know, helping you keeping your eyes on the objective. And then, like you said, they're the highest trained people. So, I mean, you don't want to, you wouldn't want to be with somebody. Personally, I didn't want to be with somebody who was less trained. I wanted to know that the people around me to my right and left were the best out there.
1: Tony, this is more a a question for you, but also for Dan, because you're both Rangers. But for people listening that might not understand, like you said, all the support in the world and the logistics that you guys have. Is it, is it pretty common, the missions or anything you guys go on, where you just have air support at your call, you know, you kind of have like everything you want to where if there's just regular infantry in the army that are on the ground, you know, they got to kind of go through a bunch of different, um, how should I say it, like loop, not loopholes, but just a bunch of different people for that to happen?
0: I, I would say, I mean, I know that when we were in Ramadi, which was my second deployment, that we would time our missions based on certain assets being on station. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, yeah, we're not going out unless we have the support. Um, it's, it was just, uh, a smart man's game at that yeah. point.
2: Yep. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because again, it was a very fringe case that it would happen, but every time, you know, you didn't have eyes on or you didn't have some sort of aerial support you're like wow this is this is weird like what happens if this really pops off
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I mean felt- you, you think about like traditional forces the marines and ramadi is what i always saw they're just walking mm-hmm. around no assets those guys are badasses really i mean yeah. they're walking around mm-hmm. that city no assets i mean they yeah. don't even have nods half of them so um i mean yeah, yeah the, the, it's the tradition- thing, equipment right
2: yeah, and the, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, the traditional like infantry mission of just patrol till you get shot. is just crazy to me. Like just wait until you're in contact. Like we were always doing point objectives, point raids. We're trying to, you know, search somebody or something very specific. Uh, right. whereas, you know, your, your standard units, um, They have a battle space and they patrol that area and they're just waiting. Yeah, they're looking for signs, make sure there's no IEDs, like trying to keep people, you know, just have a presence in the space. Um, But I mean, when when it really comes down to it, they're just a walking target and they're just waiting for somebody to shoot at them.
1: I mean, you look like Lima Company, and the Marine Corps, like how heavy they got hit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just during that time in Ramadi,
0: I remember being on a rooftop. I was a saw gunner. Uh, or a 46 gunner in, in in battalion and I was looking down a road and I saw a bunch of marines walking towards us we could not get comms with them they had no nods I mean we could clearly see their whole platoon they walked almost directly up on us before um, anyone knew who we were um, so I was just thinking to myself man if I was a bad dude I could just take them out really and they would <laughs> yeah. have no idea no idea that's yeah. crazy yeah
2: yeah, it's a it's a whole different world, and I'm you know, I'm glad I got to serve with the people I did, and I'm also glad that there are people willing to serve in the capacity that they did, that was not within special operations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tony, I know um, obviously your bio, and you've told us a little bit about both your deployments. You know, Ramadi, and then you did Afghanistan. Was there other deployments that you were a part of as well?
0: No, nope, just those two. Just yeah, those two. Missed, okay, I missed one because of Ranger School, and um, another one right when I was ETSing.
1: Yeah. Okay, gotcha.
2: So I uh, I do want to start jumping into it a little bit. So um, correct me if I'm wrong. Your first deployment was to Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was the first one. Was wow, yeah, Bagram.
2: Yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit about that, especially, you know, being a young ranger, you, really at this point, still it's early in the war. So a lot of people still don't know what to expect, really. Like when I when I got in and my first deployment was in 2007. So I had enough people who had years and multiple rotations of experience in combat. So they would tell me like, hey, expect this, expect that. Don't expect this. Don't expect that. It's not like the movies here or there. Like I got a lot of feedback from you know my team leaders and squad leaders and things like that. But what was it like for you initially getting to Bagram?
0: Yeah, I mean, most of the most of the senior leaders in my platoon, this was their third or fourth trip already. Um, mm-hmm. As crazy as that sounds, but yeah, it was third or fourth trip over there. Um, so they they knew kind of what to expect. But um, it was a different. It was the war was changing at the time we got there. I mean. It was more going towards, you know, more like the direct action raids that we do almost to this day. But mm-hmm. um, before that, early in the war, they were just doing, like, presence patrols out in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's not what we were doing when, when I arrived. So, yeah, I knew what to expect as far as the past. But, you know, the war was changing. And we weren't very busy. That was, like, pro- I, I think to this day it was probably the slowest deployment for... Um, Charlie company of two, seven, five, maybe mm-hmm. ever. And we did a lot of training. We did a lot of, uh, get ready and do nothing. Um, we were well-trained, let's put it that way, but we weren't yeah. doing a lot of operations.
1: That's crazy. So, um, and you never crossed paths with each other, right? Cause just different deployment. No, that's a, like you're in Charlie.
2: Yeah. It was very bizarre, but, um, you know, you have three platoons within a company, three line platoons within a company. And uh, we always, for whatever reason, went in separate separate paths. And mm-hmm. I never really understood that why they broke up the platoons. I do a little bit, but to me, it made a little bit more sense to centralize your command and, and be more centralized with the units and stuff. But um, at the time we had, I think their platoon was going, actually, no, at this time, all of Charlie company went roughly the same place, right? In Afghanistan
0: or yeah, for that deployment, actually, yeah, we were the only, road. I believe we were the only company, uh, full company in Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so but, there was one, there was a one platoon, I think from Bravo and everyone else was in Iraq.
2: Yeah. So when, uh, you know, when I got in, they were. I don't know. Again, I'm sure there was a higher level reasoning for doing it, but they were separating platoons and like kind of like once uh, or uh, one Charlie was always getting deployed to Afghanistan and then three Charlie was always going to Iraq okay. until the war changed again. And then, you know, 2010 it, and after that really high surge, um, a lot of people were redeploying to Afghanistan mm. and less to Iraq. Um, but yeah, so uh, strangely enough, I don't think we we probably crossed paths, but I don't remember it. I don't know if you remember ever really crossing paths. It may have
0: been briefly, but, um, yeah, yeah, I was, I think I was on my way out when you were going through, I believe.
1: Yep. What, What was that? I mean, personally for you, like, obviously that mission is, is very well known Operation Red Wings, but it's just crazy to hear from your perspective, because I feel like the media kind of portrays it obviously through the Navy seal perspective. Um, and I know there's other, you know, um, news articles and things like that. They give praise to the Rangers that rescued that team. But what was that person like to you and, and why is it not really talked about too heavily? Or maybe I'm just not seeing it too much and I'm only seeing one side.
0: You know, that that's uh, one of the motivations probably for starting to write. I mean, I have multiple motivations. One is um, I wanted my kids to know what I did in the military and yeah, that's not that's really good. a good, I mean, it's not really an easy conversation to have mm-hmm. this one time I recovered a crashed helicopter and, yeah, you don't want to go into that detail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I want my kids to know. I want them to know to to understand what war is and what it's like, so it's not just this glorified thing that we see on TV. Um, More video
1: games nowadays.
0: Yeah, so the other motivation obviously was that our story was never told.
1: Never mm-hmm. really
0: in its in its entirety. Yeah, it and hasn't been. Mm-hmm. over the years, you know, I've talked to the guys and everyone's kind of I don't want to say bitter, but they're just frustrated that it never really came out. Yeah. And that was another factor of why I decided to write. So I think now, I think once this story is out, people will be surprised be- that it's gone this long without being told. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like as I was writing the book, I was doing it for the boys. And I didn't, and I did it in a way that, um, I'm telling my story or my version of the story and mm. not their story because mm. I want them to do it too. It I yeah. was, it was very, um, I would say therapeutic, cathartic. It was good for the soul to, to get it all on paper. And I hope, I really do hope that, you know, some of my buddies out there do the same thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I, and, and I think, and not to interrupt you, but while people are yeah. listening, you know, they need to look up, leave no man behind. And go check it out. Where can they find it? What, what stores? What's the best way that, that uh, listeners can go and, and pick up this book of yours?
0: Yeah, so it's available at all major retailers, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Target. Sam's Club is going to have it in stock. And obviously your local bookstores. Mm-hmm. Just tell them, you know, leave no man behind and they can pre-order it or it'll be available August 10th in okay. all bookstores
1: cool and we'll keep plugging that as we go on because again like dan said we have a lot to talk about and we're super interested in this topic but Mm -hmm. i just want to kind of help uh you know narrow that gap for people listening that maybe understand the story only from you know the the massive film survivor they only understand it from the navy seal perspective obviously your perspective is the army rangers that went in and retrieved those men so Mm -hmm. i think it's a very important story and angle that everybody should be out there picking up this book to read and, about, and
2: and to and I'm sure you felt the same uh, perspective, and that's what again you said you it motivated you for it. But I know for for myself when I watched the movie Lone Survivor, I got really irritated because you know they they drug out the whole story, and I get it the this the, the storyline was the rescue of Marcus Luttrell. Mm-hmm. it was the operation, it was the initial surveillance and intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. However. They breezed past what happened there at the end. Was it like a five minute, five
1: ten minute? Yeah, it went clip. so
2: quick, and you can tell it was conventional units that they were basically spotlighting, you know. And they didn't tell any portion of the story of the rescue, other than you know Mark Wahlberg sitting in a in a Quanta hut or whatever he was in, and mm-hmm. then them busting in and, and rescuing him. Like it was just, it was Hollywooded. It was majorly Hollywooded.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to remember, they did it based off of uh, Marcus's book. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that, it was his perspective, really. And that's what the whole movie was. And, you know, I, yeah, I got I the same feeling. I'm like, I ah, wish they would have told more about, you know, mm-hmm. our portion. But no one knew it. I mean, there, yeah. there were no sources at that point. So
1: it's accurate to his story. It's yeah, 100 percent.
0: And And Marcus was recently on. I think it was Joe Rogan. He said, you guys could do it. I mean, they could do a whole movie on the rescue. And it's like, yeah, yeah, they totally could. Yeah, they should do that. I mean,
1: they should almost do a part two in a sense where they tell the ranger side of it. And I think that'd be an interesting like two movie kind of series. Yeah, I would would love
0: to have all the boys together, you know, helping with that. That would be awesome.
1: Working with Hollywood just like he did and make sure that it's like spot on. And I think that's where Hollywood um, is getting better at, you know, more so as they're bringing in these veterans and people that have been in the shit that have seen it all. And they're like, all right, tell us how to tell this story. And we'll add a little bit of bit of Hollywood because I think for most people, if they watch something that's so accurate, it's almost like a history show, you know, you right. kind of need those, those peaks of, of craziness happening, but yeah, it would be cool if they, if they told the ranger perspective. Yeah.
2: Um, so if you could, let's, let's start unraveling and telling people, cause I, I, I'm, I'm certain not everybody has seen Lone Survivor or mm-hmm. read the book Lone Survivor. So if you can tell kind of a little bit of the background and then uh, start going into kind of your perspective of that night and initially showing up to the, the crash scene.
0: Yeah, so the whole Lone Survivor movie does a really good job kind of going through the background, but I'll just give a little brief kind of uh, intro. Mm-hmm. Essentially, there's a guy, uh, Ahmad Shah in Afghanistan that was you know, the troublemaker in, in the area of Satalosar, Sar, and he he was going around making IEDs. And he was blowing up US troops pretty, pretty regularly. And we had enough. So what ended up happening is uh, Marcus and his team uh, went out for to surveil him and basically look at where he was building these IDs. And and they went on this uh, recon mission that was compromised really early, almost, almost immediately. And it was by a Um, The story goes by a goat herder and they released the goat herder who who then ran off and told all the bad dudes, hey, you've got some guys up in the mountains coming for you. Mm -hmm. And they were ready. I mean, in this terrain, I would say any four man team that was walking through that terrain was in trouble. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Really, there was really no, you know, I've heard I've heard people in the past say, oh, how did they how did they not fight? harder. It's like, once you get out there and you see it, you say, ah, I see what happened here. They Mm -hmm. didn't stand a chance. They really didn't. Um,
1: well, I'm sure, I'm sure the people, the enemy that they're fighting, understand that terrain much more and it's brutal terrain. Like for anybody that's ever hunted. And like, I tell Dan and and Dan's even told more so me, like the desert we grew up in, you know, just like uh, cathedral city, Palm Springs, Joshua tree, those mountains and some of those pine trees up there look pretty similar to some of the footage that I've seen. And it's like brutal country to try and hike through or just get around.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, I mean, really brutal. I mean, hands and knee. I mean, you're on all fours trying to get up certain parts. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, rocks falling everywhere. Um, I mean, what to your right will be a, a cliff and to your left is like, maybe you can grab onto a tree. You're just kind of sliding as you're walking up this hill. Um, it, I mean, it's brutal. And, and these guys where they were ambushed, they were, I mean they, they had no chance mm-hmm. so that four-man team got ambushed um they immediately you know tried to call for help comms in the area were awful um so they were getting no they the radios weren't connecting to anybody and and if you look at the medal of honor citation from michael murphy he took a satellite phone and kind of ran out into an open area and made a call for help and that's the one that came through and following that, um, they sent out a QRF, which is a quick reaction force mm-hmm. with um, some of his Navy SEAL buddies. And they flew in essentially to, to rescue them from this ambush. And as they were coming in, almost probably, they were probably getting ready to rope. It looked like they had unhooked. And they were hit with an RPG, and that mm-hmm. Chinook helicopter came down to the side of the mountain. So we had, you know, a four man team that had just been ambushed and you had 16 men on board a Chinook helicopter down on the side of a mountain. And that's when they called us who we had just switched to the primary, uh, combat search and rescue in the, for the entire country, Mm -hmm. probably weeks before. And we, we were spun up to go help them. Weather was horrible and we couldn't get to the crash site for over 24 hours, which was Mm. I I write about this in the book, how frustrated I was that we couldn't get to them and how frustrated everybody was. Um, But when we did get out there, um, we did not know what we were getting into because we didn't have we didn't even have maps. That's how bad this part of the country was is we didn't even have maps. Mm. There were no maps. No one had made maps of that area. So we were using satellite imagery to try to get to our destination. And anyone who's ever looked at satellite imagery knows that you can't see terrain very well.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And we got bit pretty hard when we thought we were pretty close to the crash site uh, on the map, but it was just horrendous terrain straight up and straight down pretty much everywhere. Mm
1: -hmm. How big was your team that went in there?
0: Um, my whole platoon, uh, went out as well as three, Charlie, mm. um, kind of, we basically all are my platoon minus. So we took down, you know, we cut a lot of people. There were basically one, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but I know Dan is, but on some missions they'll cut like the lowest man on the totem pole, basically the lowest mm-hmm. private. You're not going, um, everyone else is well. We had to cut weight because we we're going way up in the mountains so we cut almost a full squad wow with the guys for our platoon same thing with three charlie mm-hmm. um but we landed i mean we fast roped in which was another fun story it was about a we estimate that it was a 100 to 110 foot rope
3: Whoa. Uh, Whoa, above matricul- the
0: trees and but we didn't know that i mean we uh it was so dark and foggy that you couldn't even see the end of the rope
1: Wow! I remember. I remember looking at
0: my squad leader, who was the rope master, and he kind of looked back at the at the, the rest of the crew and went, "Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I can't see anything. Do we go?" And then we just started going. We just went for it. Wow! And obviously, um, you, you guys knew that the ground was there. Like, it wasn't just we knew cliff. it was there, but we didn't know how far okay. it was. Like, you, you normally check and see the ropes on the ground, right? Yeah. You're looking for that chem light, um, and you could tell yeah. he, he didn't know where it was. Oh man! So um, you, have
2: a, you have a just to give people a little bit. So you have a chem light at the end of the rope, and it
1: was like a little tiny like infrared light or something. Yeah. Okay.
2: So it's straight up and down normally on the end of the rope. So when you finally see it horizontal, then you know you're good. Yep. Because it's on the ground or on something.
1: And so that's, that's hopefully it's not snagging in a tree.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it was. Yeah, we had no clue. I mean, it was in a heavily wooded area. So, mm-hmm. what um, time did
1: you guys go out? Was that like early morning? Then, like still black Oh yeah, pitch it was. Black?
0: It was. Um, I don't know. I remember off the top of my head, but yeah, it was pitch black. It was. Jeez. It was a really bad storm. So it was foggy, and we couldn't. You couldn't see anything. I mean, I couldn't even tell where we were. It just looked like we were in a cloud. Jeez, and, that's crazy. Um, yeah, so going down that rope was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And So, all right. Um, it, what's funny is I, I did get, so I served in three Charlie. So I heard this story from numerous other people, team leaders, squad leaders, and stuff like that. Obviously once I finally showed up and they told me how long that rope was, uh, but I had forgotten about that until you mentioned it. And, uh, it, it that, just kept going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for anybody who has fast rope before, or anybody who doesn't know anything about it, like normally when you, even, even when you train, you typically are training in like a, I think it's like a 60-foot tower or something like that is usually the highest that we go. I think uh, 40 but,
0: is usually what we're at. Yeah, right okay, about 40 much, feet. much lower. But, to but to then when we're tra-
2: And then when we're training, because we don't want people to get hurt, we typically train fast rope like super low when we're actually coming out of a bird. Mm. So it'll be, you know, 15 feet off the ground or something like that because that's what they, in reality, try to do is get you as low as you can to the terrain, but the aircraft is only going to stay at a, an elevation that they feel comfortable. So you mm-hmm. have to train for potentially taking the entire rope, which I think majority of the ropes we had were either 80 or 120, uh, yeah. 80, 100, or 120 foot ropes. Um, so yeah, that's crazy to me. You just keep going and going and going. Yeah. yeah I mean, I feel like forever. I just
0: remember thinking to myself, I'm going to hit the ground at any moment and then it would yeah. be like another 20 feet. <laughs> like, Jeez. Oh my God. And I hit, I hit hard. I mean, I, yeah, I'll never forget it. I, I mean, insane. I, it was like, I got hit by a car. That's what it felt yeah. like. I so mean, the first time you land out of a, a like a an airborne jump, mm-hmm. you're like, wow, that was much harder than I expected. Well, this was harder, much harder.
1: <laughs> so basically <laughs> you all our gear too. Yeah. When, when you guys touched down, you guys were just kind of hiking through the shit all night long. And then was it, towards like sunrise or morning or what was kind of the time frame of when you guys actually got to the point of being engaged with an enemy and, and rescuing that team?
0: Yeah. So we, we um, yeah, we walked for hours um, before we got to the crash site and it was basically the sunrise when we reached it. Mm-hmm. So it, we walked all through the night and it was, yeah, we were all beat by the time we got there and that's that was like the start of the mission basically mm-hmm. it's like okay now you got to get to work guys yeah. um so we were pretty beat up
2: well i, re- I remember seeing the the photos and everything um because we had them hanging on the walls is uh like during that operation too because of the elevation how hot it got and all of you know everything getting drained of liquids like i heard you guys went through a, a massive high, rehydration period you know, giving each other IVs and everything to try and stay,
1: uh, hydrated. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I definitely ran out of water multiple times, like completely out of water. Jeez. And I, I just want to note that, you know, we my Charlie company fast roped in Bravo company walked in and they walked in from like a So they, I mean, they, these guys, and those are probably the photos you've probably seen online or the guys doing the IVs. Those are bravo company guys unbelievable like the, they were walking they were walking so fast and it was so hot and so bad they killed one of their donkeys one of their donkeys donkeys died and if you know those donkeys they keep going they don't die yeah, yeah. Gee, so, how
1: far how far do you think that was approximately
0: you know i I don't know but it was too far like yeah it's unbelievable far.
1: I can imagine like seven eight miles if not more maybe oh no, way more than that. way more, okay. yeah, it was way yeah. more than oh that. wow
2: yeah no it was uh it was far because i know where um asadabad is in in this location man if they hike from there i'm gonna i'm gonna have to plot it on a map after this because i want to see
0: <laughs> yeah i've done it in the past and i don't remember but it was it was insane basically what yeah, they were geez. doing and i mean they had units walking with them that basically quit on the way so yeah <laughs> it's it's wild how did
1: that carry on that mission? Because obviously, you know, lone survivor, it cuts when Marcus is rescued. Was there a whole nother second firefight that happened after that of getting them out of there?
0: Um, as far as we know, there wasn't, I mean, okay, just we, during we, rescuing him. There was, we did have some enemy contact, but it was very short lived. It was,
3: mm-hmm.
0: it was kind of a joke, to be honest. Um, we were far enough away that we were out of, uh, any effective range for for their weaponry. So, um, Mm. thanks to our assets in the sky, took care of them. We could see it. We could watch them. They were walking on us and they were no longer walking on us after our assets got it. It was so other than that, I think once they saw how many guys were coming out, they all ran for it. Yeah. They weren't even gonna have any, any part of that.
1: Yeah. If they're smart, they would. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I
0: think, I think they were pretty smart. They usually are. They usually (laughs) are pretty smart they understand especially when they know how big terrain. the force was that was coming
2: Re- yeah they that crafty. was revenge incredibly crafty too i mean they know those hills they've been fighting in those hills for millennia yep. um, and so they know how to dig in make tunnels hide caches like it's probably one of the f- most frustrating and honestly kind of uh i don't know the best word to say it but it kind of opens your eyes like holy crap like who who would be this craftier would think this in depth about how they're going to move throughout these hills because we talked about it already it's not easy terrain Mm -hmm. like why would you put these bunkers and fighting positions in this horrendous terrain but they do
1: and how do you get your tools up there yeah to do all that
0: you, you, you'd you be surprised. They'll literally put it on their back and walk up the mountain. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, you walk through those mountains and there's bunkers and things everywhere. It's like mm-hmm. the only thing they live for is to fight. And yeah. so n- me being, you know, 9-11 motive, motive, motivated me to fight, they're born to fight.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's the Two line.
1: forces, like, basically going at each other that that's all they know is trying to fight. For survival. And that's just, it's crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um, talk us through you, you, so you're walking up to the, the crash site. Um, you finally get to the crash site. What was, I guess the, the thought process for you going through at the time. And then also, you know, those around you and what was the next kind of steps that you guys went through?
0: You know, going back and thinking about it and all the, I mean, I took crazy amount of notes, like in between the kind of the the action points when I was on the mountain, just so I had a record of what we what we did. And um, I remember just thinking, "There's got to be someone there that's alive. They're just laying there, waiting for us to show up." You know, so I that was constantly just going through my head over and over and over again that we're going to find these guys alive. They're going to be good. They're going to be okay. Um, and everyone knows the end of that story. None of them were okay. Mm-hmm. So there's a total so was, of nine, nine men that,
1: no,
2: S- 16 plus
0: 16, the... 16 were at the crash site. Correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I mean, it was honestly, it was a huge disappointment because yeah, oh, we knew was. a helicopter crash and we knew that it was unlikely there were survivors, but I can almost bet that most guys out there thought that we're going to have somebody alive. Yeah.
2: I mean, you have to have that, at least a glimmer of hope, because otherwise you wouldn't move as fast or as hard to get there, and I could just imagine how defeating that is to know, you know, like, we were coming to get you, we were coming, and we just either felt like you weren't fast enough, or just knew that it, it, you know, there was nothing you could have done.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It felt like, you know, we should have been here 24 hours ago. Um Mm -hmm. And we couldn't because of weather. and That was extremely frustrating. Because mm-hmm. I guarantee you if we had the choice, we still would have tried. Yeah. And yeah, so that was always in the back of my head. Like, gosh, were these guys, did they survive anything? Like, if we were here sooner, were they alive? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. It was It definitely took the wind out of your sails for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was back to business. Like, once you had that moment of taking a knee and, you know, kind of gathering yourself, it was, okay, now we got to get these guys home. Mm-hmm. So,
3: yeah.
2: And I'm sure that was, you know, equally or probably even harder in a lot of regards, because um, one thing we, we talked about, and I think this is probably why, you know, you, you chose the title of your book and, you know, leave no man behind, but no matter what, it doesn't matter how much carnage or how much bad there is like the things we've learned in the past from the previous wars we've been in, especially Vietnam and, and all the bodies and people that have been left behind in that, like you, it's ingrained in you when you're going through basic training, when you're going through any other training, going through rip, ending up at, you know, range battalion. you'd never leave anybody behind. Mm, doesn't matter if they're, if they're killed or wounded, you're always going to be there in the fight to make sure everybody gets back.
0: I mean, it's right there in the ranger creed. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's one of the first things you learn, right? So, um, this was the creed. I I like to say, this is the creed in action. This is really, that's, that's what it was. That's what that mission was. So we were living the ranger creed right there on that mountain. So from that part, I mean, now I'm I'm incredibly proud of what everyone accomplished out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish it would have gone differently, but you know, we don't get to make that choice. All yeah. we can control is our own actions.
1: Absolutely. So, it's kind of funny, like the name of our podcast is obviously Never Left Behind. Yeah. Yeah. And your book, Great. you know, Leave No Man Behind. When we saw that, we were like, that's, that's pretty cool how that lined up.
2: Well, it's it, it, you said it at the beginning of
1: this podcast
2: too, is like, hopefully things like this, storytelling like this, gets people to not only like, don't you don't want to leave a person behind, but you also don't want to leave your memories and your history behind. And that's kind of the idea behind our, our podcast mm-hmm. is like never left behind. It's you don't leave your past in the past. You got to bring it with you. And yes, there are some demons that may come along with it. You got to deal with those separately. But the the stories and the history and the facts and the personal accounts of things need to be
0: told.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I like to I mean, you have an amazing book coming out, so we should probably talk about that for a minute. But <laughs> I would say that. Every single person that's ever gone off to war has a story. And just because it's not just because it's not a movie, like doesn't mean you shouldn't tell that story. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this thing was um, both of my grandfathers served in the Korean War. And when I sat down and thought about it, I didn't know what unit they were in. I didn't know anything about their service.
3: Mm hmm.
0: And the only reason I learned anything is they passed away and we had to do some research. But, you know, that to me, that's a shame. Like, yeah, what they did was amazing and everyone should know about it. So, yeah, I, I mean, let's talk about your book, Dan.
1: <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. I got, I got a question. I want to yeah. know uh, how long did it take you one to write this book of yours? And also to kind of even go into it a little bit further. Do you remember the first part of the book that you first started writing?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, the so first of all, it took me, and this is, it took me probably ten years total to write the book. No kidding. However, wow. however, I will say this: that was mostly just me gathering my thoughts, like notes, um, bullet points, you know, talking to people. Mm-hmm. But really, ultimately, I wrote the book in about three and a half months. Okay. I mean, I sat down mm-hmm. every day. 4 a.m. I would get up and I would write till seven every day, no matter what. And honestly, that's probably the only way it actually got done is because I had to had to force myself to do it. Cause you're always gonna have a reason not to to do something. You can always find an excuse. And yeah. I would find myself sitting there staring at the screen, like, oh man, I gotta I gotta pay our water bill. Oh, I gotta clean up the garage too. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like <laughs> that's so insignificant, but your brain is going to find excuses, right? So yeah. I made it a point to every day, no matter, even if I wrote one sentence from four to seven, I was sitting in front of that computer and I was looking at a word document.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow.
0: Um, so I, I think there was another part of the question. <laughs> I don't even the, remember what, what was, was.
1: The, the first part that you started writing about it? Cause yeah. you said, you took notes down, but I'm curious where you actually started writing it and what
0: part that was in, in the story it actually um and it was mostly encouragement from a friend that he's like what what was the most action what was the most action i'm like that's not the most important part but it kind of get the creative juice juices going right Mm -hmm. and it was literally the the prologue or right that rope scene that i write about um roping in was kind of the start and -hmm. i thought it was kind of good to start that way because um it's exciting. Right. So it gets the heart pumping and you have to you have to really to explain that to someone who's never done it. It's not easy. Yeah. You have to capture the emotions, the, you know, the, the scene, everything all in one short period of time. So that's how I started. And then okay. I went back and <laughs> I mean, literally, the book was written in non chronological order. I mean, chapters that were taken away, some were added it's a process. It really is not as simple as it sounds as far as like going just chronologically.
1: Yeah, no, we can understand I mean, how hectic yeah. it is to to create a book. And, and for that, for you doing it all on your own, you know, I've always had help with Dan and Tom. and There's three of us with a publisher, but it's like, I can't imagine doing it all on your own and taking that much time. I, in it. And so that's, it's crazy. But I love the way that that's how things start. It's like when it starts kind of into action right away, there's no slow rolling
0: yeah, so I I did not do this all alone. So Bob Welch was mm-hmm. uh, helping me along the way. I mean he, okay. I mean I would send him stuff and he would make it sound way better, and then I would change it, and so we were going back and forth constantly. But yeah, I I, I would say we need to mention his name because Bob Welch uh, was co-author. He's actually on the on the cover as well. Oh my apologies, uh, he then. he did he helped me. I mean honestly, I. I I probably would have found an excuse to not continue it if he wasn't mm-hmm. there. Like, no, tell me more about this. Mm-hmm. This is what people yeah. want to know about. Write about that part. Like, okay. I didn't think that was important, but okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it's, uh, you know, it's great that you said that because my, my question was going to be what kept you committed and motivated to, to writing the book? And so it's good to hear, you know, you have somebody who's kind of motivating you. And it, it's interesting that you said that. And I think this is important for people to, to think about when, they're telling their story is, you know, find the reason to tell your story Mm -hmm. and find the people that is going to not necessarily draw it out of you, but are going to, is going to inspire you to continue to share your story.
0: Yeah. I mean, Bob definitely drew it out of me. I mean, he, I would write like maybe a paragraph about something. He'd be like, seriously, that's all you're going to tell me about that. That's the only thing I want to hear about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'd be like, Oh, Oh, I thought that was not important. So I would, yeah. you know, dive in and then talking about myself. I was, oh, I hate yeah. talking about myself. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So the whole book was like a, a really, when I first wrote it, it was kind of a boring, just history book. Um, and he's like, you know what? People are going to read this and be like, so who's this guy who wrote the book? Like, what does he have to do with it? Yeah. Um, so he really helped me he forced my forced me to talk about myself and that's not easy. If you've ever had to do that, it's not easy to, you know, talk about how you're a wimp and, (laughs) and you're nerd. Um, but you know, it's, it makes for a better read. It makes for a better story. It helps
1: the the readers understand you a little bit more on a personal level. And and I can imagine that that was probably hard for you. I know you lightly touched on earlier of what motivated you to make this book but there's plenty of men and women that we've even interviewed for our book that are like, why are you telling my story? Like, it's not that important. Or like many people refuse to tell their story because they think that their story isn't important. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, like what made you kind of flip that and be like, you know what? My story is important and I want to put it on paper.
0: Yeah. It was, I mean, hundred percent, it was my two children. Like I, Mm -hmm. I looked at them and you know, when you serve in the military and you've been around people who've Who've died and who've passed away? You're like, man, that guy was amazing. He, you tell all you know, all these stories, but does does his family know that about him? Yeah. Does his, you know, I mean, his his own family probably doesn't even know those, some of those stories. And I looked at my kids, and they weren't even alive during all this, so yeah, they might have heard it off the side shoot, like, oh, my dad was in the army, but now they have some context. Now they mm-hmm. have something forever. You know, if I get, I mean, God forbid this happens, but if I got hit by a train tomorrow, at least they would know that. Right. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. So I, it, you know, it gives me, it makes, I sleep better at night knowing that my kids know something about my life. You it's know, an interesting way yeah. of putting it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, it, it just opens like, cause I, I have a one year old now as a first child, but definitely when you have a kid, it just open your eye, opens your eyes to a lot of other things that you just didn't think about previously it's like how you act, the the relationships you've had with people, like mm. the way you talk about other people around them, like just all the little nuances that you normally wouldn't really process or fully think about. You start dissecting it more and, and thinking back to like, oh, well, maybe this is why I'm shaped the way that I am. I want to make sure that I teach my son or daughter differently so that they don't, you know, have that nuance that they, that I don't like about myself, you know, in mm-hmm. their, in their uh in their actions and so yeah it definitely opens your eyes to a lot of different things that I think normally you don't see uh until you are a parent.
0: Yeah, I mean <laughs> you you definitely see in your own kids all the stuff that you hate about yourself. Yep. <laughs> you don't realize it <laughs> until they do it and you're like gosh, why do you do that? Oh, that's right because I do that. <laughs> um <laughs> like my son, he's incredibly intelligent and you tell him to do something and he has an answer. Like he has something to say. That's exactly what I did in battalion. If you asked any of my team leaders, who was the biggest smart ass you ever had as a private, this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and th- they will say this. Yeah. He was usually right, but he should have just kept his mouth shut. <laughs> he would have done less pushups.
1: <laughs> do you talk about that in the book too? Uh, n-
0: not too much, but yeah. I was definitely, definitely a smart ass. Um, yeah,
2: I was I was the prankster. Like I always I was what? figuring out how to pull pranks on people. Like fr- <laughs> the easy ones is like freezing people's PCs and and putting oh, yeah. it like in a block of ice because they left it in the wrong place or something. I wasn't worried. Put like a bucket of water over a door. Oh yeah, I did that overseas. So I put a <laughs> bucket over somebody's chew and I uh, was like, hey, we got <laughs> we got to go, we got to go, we're getting spun up, and uh, and they came out of their chew like. You know, with their eyes, just like, uh, open the door and then just a bucket of water dumps on them. And I got a video of it. It's great. Um, but yeah. And then, uh, gosh, what's the other one? My favorite one that I did. And to this day, they still don't know who did it. So this will be the first time that I've admitted to it. But, uh, no. I Saran wrapped the company commander and first sergeant's cars. We had a giant roll of Saran wrap and we went top to bottom all the way around it. Saran wrapped their doors then the other way, I did it again, and then around the other way. Jeez, took me probably, gosh, I don't know, an oh, hour man. each car, <laughs> but uh, it took them a bit to get into their car. Finally,
0: uh, they're they're probably going to hear this, and you'll be getting some phone calls, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, they can't reprimand rep- me now, so yeah. <laughs> they were so pissed though. I remember they they were threatening to uh, call everybody to formation and do all this, and I was like.
0: I was like, they're not going to do that. They don't care. They so, don't
2: want everybody to know that this happened.
0: Who else knew? Was it just you or was it everybody else? Uh,
2: there was probably a, a core of eight people or so that knew <laughs> that it was me. And that was about it.
1: And they all killed good work, marshall. man. Good work. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Tony, Tony, I'm curious what, uh, if there is any, I know it's hard because it's, it's your baby. It's your book. Is there a favorite yeah. part to it? That's very kind of dear to you.
0: Um, Honestly, the one that, like, I still kind of brings tears to my eyes is there's a chapter called The Ring. And, you know, after we recovered all the guys at the crash site, we we realized that one of the guys that a lot of people knew, actually, uh, personally, he was a um, star pitcher at West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't have his wedding ring on when we found him. And everyone knew that he's supposed to have his wedding ring. Like, he always wears it. So we got on our hands and knees in, in the crashed helicopter site and we're digging through ashes until we found it.
1: Wow. And
0: we did. We found it. Wow. Uh, it took us forever to find it. But we did. I mean, and there, really? you look around, there was Rangers hands and knees. We'd taken off our gear, set our weapons down and we we're crawling around looking for a ring. I mean, how often does that happen in a combat zone?
2: That's insane. Oh, that, that yeah, I chills. think that's
0: the humanity. Like that, that was one of my favorite uh, parts to write about, mostly mm-hmm. because I got in contact with the widow, and she sent me a picture next to with her hand, with her ring on her finger, oh, next wow. to her husband's photo. Wow! And like, I'll Dude, never that forget chills. it. Yeah, it was amazing. All right,
1: people listening, pause this. <laughs> Go pre-order <laughs> "Leave No Man Behind." Cause Absolutely. I'm like excited to read more about this. And I know Dan is literally, if you're listening, pause on Spotify, pause on Google podcasts, pause YouTube. Um, that's exciting to hear about it. and I know there's yeah. a lot more to it that we don't want to spoil. And I'm sure you don't want to spoil for people. Yeah.
2: No, we want people to be excited to read this entire book and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited for it. And and kind of transitioning out of it, I think there's, um, I can't remember if it's in the, in the intro or in one of the chapters, you talk about, you know, what your transition out of the military was like, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you talk about how it was similar to the scene from Lord of the Rings, and uh, how it was just get, sitting in the Shire and looking around at everybody and just realizing the shit that you went through and nobody else understands. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and uh, and talk about your transition out?
0: Yeah. I think, I think that is like kind of an ode to the brotherhood. Right. So, you know, we can all sit at a bar together and we know what each of us has been through. We don't have to know all the details, but you know, when we when we give the cheers, it's different than, you know, the guys at the bar that we see this, the civilians, so to speak, Um, they're celebrating, you know, this crazy awesome life that we have in America Mm -hmm. and they, don't necessarily understand the, the sacrifice that happens. Mm. Um, so that's kind of my ode to that to the Lord of the Rings scene. I think it kind of really tells the story of what veterans feel like kind of like outsiders, like no one really understands us. Um, no one takes us seriously. Um, so that was kind of how my transition felt like I it felt like everything moved in slow motion. No one cared about anybody else but themselves it was frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. And I think so many veterans are out there that they they're just the same thing. They're completely frustrated. Um, no one understands them. No one gets it. Right. You've heard that. Yeah. No, one no one understands or no one understands me. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, but I think, yeah, our your fellow veterans do understand. So I think it's um, it's important to talk about. It's important to say that, you know, hey, we need to stick together. And that's how you get through that transition back to civilian life is kind of sticking with some of your veterans also. Um, A lot of us, I mean, I I know a lot of guys that kind of just completely separate from the military and they go back to what their life was before. Mm -hmm. And that's rough. I mean, no one understands what you just went through. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, I, I did that and I, I, you know, I, I've talked about it multiple times and mm-hmm. I talked about it in the kind of the intro to our book, um, is how to me it wasn't, it wasn't a chapter of my life. It was a different book. Like my military experience was a completely different book, but it's taken me a long time to realize, yeah, maybe it was a different book, but it's a volume in a series. And that, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that definitely builds on my character and, You know, it has shaped a lot of the ways that I act and react to different things and um, made me a much, much better person, better better father, better better friend, better leader, all those things. And um, it took me eight years, though, to really, really, really start reflecting on it, which is kind of why this podcast started, why the book started, why a lot of these things started happening was because I was tired of having those flash memories of things that I did in the past and not really being able to apply them directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Embrace it.
0: It doesn't, it didn't make you Dan, right? It's not, it's Mm -hmm. a part of you, but it didn't, it's not everything. But, um, yeah, you need to embrace it. And I think that's tough. Yeah. No one, no one around you knows what that is. How do you embrace it? Right?
1: That's one thing what you said, Tony, for me as a civilian is, um, really trying to understand, more veterans, you know, and I've, I've been exposed to, I'd say plenty by now, um, with this book that we've done, but there's so many more that I just keep meeting and, and keep learning from, from their stories and their experiences where I'll never understand what that cheers is like, like you said. And, but I think it's so important to kind of, um, you almost try and put yourself in their shoes as a, on a human level. And I've just been trying to like, you know, get to know these men and women better. And I think that a lot of civilians, like you said, we're just, kind of used to a coddled lifestyle. Like we really think our life is hard and yes, we have our own struggles, but there's so much more out there that we kind of block and we become very selfish about it. And um, that's, I guess that was my inspiration of, you know, partnering up with Tom and Dan here, you know, who are both Rangers and I've never served. So I'm like kind of the, the odd man out as a civilian, but I feel like I can bring a lot of value to other civilians and help teach them maybe the process I've gone through. And I think that, 2020, I think, is was a year for many people where it was tough, and it's a year that none of us, I think, will ever forget. Mm-hmm. But I think more importantly, it's probably a year for you um, with this book. It was a year for us during this book for Dan getting involved in the military community again, and this podcast. I mean, I, I look at 2020 as like after all the shit that went happened, it was a great year mm-hmm. because yeah. of the things that we can all look back on from it.
0: Well, it's it's your actions, right? I mean you guys took action and did something. And Mm. I think a lot of, a lot of people didn't. So it's, it was a rough year. I mean, I, I I'd say it's probably the worst year in my, my business, Mm -hmm. but at the same time I grew so much. Like I, I realized what I didn't want and I realized what I was missing. I realized, I mean, I look at, honestly, I look at 2020 as like the longest deployment of my life. Um, I live in Washington, so it was a little bit worse than I think yeah. a lot of places in the country. Yeah, um, like we just opened on June thirtieth. Our economy was, just opened. That was late. So, yeah, it's so it was rough. I mean, I I mean I haven't told many people this, but I we decided literally we're selling all of our belongings and we're moving to Texas. Really? So yeah. I'm in the process of doing that right now, and you, you know I'm going to be in a clinic or? for a while. I'm going to you know be there probably for another year here in Washington, but my family is going to be moving because um, mm-hmm. we just realized, you know, certain things in our life that we are taking for granted and we're, we're changing it. We're doing something about it.
1: Yeah. Is there a part of Texas that you guys enjoy the most?
0: Um, I, I just love Texas in general, but yeah. I, I, we're moving to Montgomery County, okay, which is north of Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, that's, that's where Marcus Luttrell lives. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's a beautiful place. I mean, Mm -hmm. my my family's following me there, so I'm happy.
2: Have you met, obviously you have before, but have you met Marcus again? Like, especially through this process of, of writing the book?
0: I, I've actually never met Marcus. I mean, I wasn't actually physically there when he was rescued. I was in a different part of the mountain. Um, it was three Charlie that really did that portion of the mission. Mm-hmm. and i've i've never met him since um someday i hope to shake his hand and say i'm thankful you're here um but yeah i have i have not met him to this day
2: well i'm sure he I'm would, sure it'll you, he would appreciate shaking your hand too just cuz i know he definitely gives a lot of credit to rangers too mm-hmm. like he he definitely <laughs> says multiple times um you know rangers saved my ass and i know they love hearing that <laughs> Like I've heard him say that line multiple times.
0: Yeah, and it, it, yeah, I mean, it, for that for that little rivalry we have, of course. Yep. But in, at the end of the day, like, all of us don't care that he was a seal. I mean, yep. yeah, at the time we did. We're like, oh yeah, it was a seal, whatever. But now it's like, no, we're all Americans. We're yeah. we're all serving. I mean, I'll say it. I think he's a hero. I mean, to survive that utter yeah. hell he went
1: through. Uh, yeah,
0: I mean. I think most people would have tapped. Yeah.
1: I, I, I don't know how he, most I, I have honestly have him.
0: no clue how he got through that. I mean, yep. yeah. I've read the book, I've seen the terrain myself. Um, I've been through the weather out there, which I tried to really describe in my book really well is how brutal that weather is. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, he, he lost his buddies. I mean, he saw it happen. Like, yeah. I can't even fathom what, what he went through. Mm
3: hmm.
1: Yeah. Hell. I couldn't literal, literal hell. That's what I'm saying. I think most people would mentally just break and give up because you have that high of, we're going to make it out. Let's keep fighting. And then all of a sudden within seconds later, that whole narrative changes and for you to be able to keep pushing on and keep going. I, I can't even begin to imagine what that's like.
2: Mm hmm. Um, so I know when you were transitioning out, did you always, I know what you do now, we're going to get to that, obviously, um, and you kind of hinted at it a little bit, but did you always know that you were going to end up going back to school and, and do what you're doing now?
0: Um, I definitely knew I was going back to school. Um, I was made for school. Like I, I am the, the kid that will sit in a classroom, not take a single note and remember everything the professor said. I just I'm good with that didactic type type learning. So mm-hmm. um, lucky me. Right. But as far as what I was going to do, I had no clue. I knew I wanted to help people. I think that was I think ironically, you know, my ranger career started on a rescue type mission, and mm-hmm. I think that was probably the most satisfaction I got as far as. What we did, I mean, you know, Ramadi, we were kicking indoors all the time, but I think the rescue portion was something that I really remembered. I really mm. had a passion for. So I knew I wanted to help people. Um, I knew it was probably going to be in the medical field. But I really didn't know what it was until, you know, I had some troubles of my own, so to speak. I mean, I had severe back pain. And I couldn't find anyone to help me. I went to PT. I went to a couple of surgeons. And they wanted to do some crazy surgeries that... You know, at 26 years old, I was like, I don't think I want to do that. Um, so I kind of stumbled into my current profession, really. No, so Literally. there was
1: that 100-foot fast rope <laughs> is what got you into chiropractic work.
0: I mean, hiking uh, those mountains. I think that was probably part of it, but definitely just the beating you take being in yeah. Ranger Battalion. Those guys that stay for a full career. Uh, oh, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Those are some freaks. Yeah. <laughs> those guys are something else. Like I, I want those guys on my team for sure. Yeah.
1: So how long have you been um, a chiropractor then? How long have you uh, been in your profession?
0: I started practicing in 2014. Okay. Was that? Seven years now already. Flies yeah.
2: by. And I don't think I know this, but do you have your own practice or do you work under an office?
0: Yeah. I have my own clinic in Redmond, Washington. Oh, wow. I'm going to be opening one in uh, Montgomery County, Texas, here soon. Mm. So, yeah, I, it, it's great. I get to work for myself. Probably a good thing. You know, when you get out of the military, you're not necessarily a great employee. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully, I think people that's a lot of the things that veterans struggle with is mm. they don't like to take orders once they get out.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So
2: Yes, yeah, especially from people who haven't been through even a fraction
1: of what you've been through.
2: Well, hopefully yeah.
1: with your new practice, people listening who live in that Texas area that need a chiropractor and want to support a veteran, they'll call you up.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do. And that's another passion of mine is treating other veterans. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, yeah, there's a lot in the Pacific Northwest, but there are a hell of a lot more in Texas. There's
2: a ton in Texas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think um, San Antonio's Marine-like. Well, it actually wasn't there. the highest percentage, but it was the highest amount of veterans uh, I think like Virginia was In the high, highest percentage, yeah, by any state. I think Virginia yeah. had the highest uh, percent, yeah. Yeah. But Excellent. that's that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, I guess what's your what's your plan moving forward? I know you talked about you're moving your family. You're you're gonna establish yourself there. Is there anything else? You know, you're releasing this book. Um, is there anything else that you're working on or have in the back burner that you're hoping kind of comes from this book?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, like I said, my passion is helping people and mm-hmm. I love helping veterans. So there's, there's a lot of things that I want to teach more veterans, how to live a healthier lifestyle once they get out of the military. Too many of them. I, I mean, you've probably seen this, you see people get out of the military and they gain 25 pounds, like yeah. almost immediately. And I, I did the same thing, I gained probably only 10 pounds, but I'm a skinnier guy, so 10 pounds fills out much faster than, than uh, in most people. But I wanna teach veterans more about how to live a healthier lifestyle. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, think about it, when you're in the military, everything's done for you. You, you just show up and eat. <laughs> you mm-hmm. do your exercise, you're forced to do it. But once you get out, no one's telling you to do that. No one's telling, hey, you gotta, you gotta work out. <laughs> Yeah. Um, You got to eat healthier. You can't eat that every day. You're not running like you used to. You're not, you know, carrying 100 pounds of weight every day. So um, you can't eat 5000 calories at every meal.
3: Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, And really, I think veterans struggle. To take care of themselves once they get out. I mean, if you look at the VA system, people are a mess. Yeah. So one of my huge goals, I've actually started kind of in the background working on this it's called objective healthy Mm -hmm. um so kind of a you know a pun play on the uh uh, objective but um Mm -hmm. i'm hoping to have classes and products that make it easier for veterans i mean i'm not i'm not going to do it for you i want to teach you i want you to to do it yourself Mm -hmm. but um yeah that's 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 my passion as far as moving forward
2: Well, you know, something exactly like what you were saying is is so important to the military community, and we've talked about it numerous times. There's over over 60,000 veteran organizations or Mm -hmm. organizations that benefit veterans. And to be able to have an organization that's more of a hand up than a hand out, I think is much more important, is like to help somebody achieve their own success versus trying to give them something like a gift that they think is going to make them successful. That's yeah. That's not how really in general majority of humans are wired, but definitely not how veterans are wired. Like we, we need the support structures and the mission orientation and the things to like work towards a goal or whatever the case may be, but not to just be like, here you go.
1: Here's this thing now be successful. Well, that's the thing is like, you can't just give somebody a hammer and expect them to build a home. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing where it's like you have to be taught and take the proper steps. And that's where you're seeing like a lot of these handouts Whether they're super generous. Some people that are getting homes and, and a new truck or whatever, that can really help change somebody's life. You know, may they need a place to live or they need a truck to get to their job. Mm-hmm. But I think with a lot of those things like that is it's just a temporary Band-Aid as to where there's a lot more to where. I mean, we've talked about this multiple times with other you know guests on the podcast that are like, you really want to help a veteran hire one. Mm-hmm. Or or find a company that's looking to hire veterans, or is trying to help them, you know, reshape their life, and kind of like what you're doing. I mean, we, we just had Steve Forte on, and he talks exactly like how you do about like, you know, um, sleep hygiene, getting the proper amount of sleep, eating right. Like, were these veterans when they got out? Did they start drinking or smoking? You know, like where has their life taken them? I and there's so many factors as to why you kind of get that broken vet or the veterans that are really struggling still.
0: Yeah, I mean, health is, you know, we we generally think of health as like, oh, I don't have any symptoms, I'm healthy, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with me, so I'm healthy. Well, you you learn real quick, um, being in my profession, that that means nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. people are walking around right now, friends, family, and this sucks. They have cancer right now, and they don't know it. Mm-hmm. They won't find out till years later, because that's when their symptoms come.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And now that now it's like, oh, my gosh, I got to do something. Well, it might be too late. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to get, you know, more veterans proactive rather than reactive um, as far as when it when it looks at their health.
2: Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, I don't know, maybe they're doing a better job now, but it's it's definitely something that you're not really taught formally in the military, like, yes, you're, you're taught physical fitness, you're taught in the d- gym, maybe depending on who your team leader, squad leader, whatever was, you might have been taught how to do proper calisthenics and stretching and things like that, but probably not. Um, mm-hmm. but then your other wellness, like eating right, not drinking in excess, uh, <laughs> making sure that you do mental check-ins and being able to get mental help and not having a stigma around it and all these other things. Factors that just don't get talked about in the military at all, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm excited for more and more opportunities for veterans to to learn the proper ways to take care of themselves. Because again, um, I'm hoping there's a there's a whole movement, and I think we were kind of chatting about this a little bit online. But like a movement around the the veteran culture coming out of you know these twenty years of combat, and yes. There's always going to be continuous combat. There's still things going on in the world It's not ending. Um, But the major, you know, the major conflicts are coming to an end. Mm. And so being able to focus now on how do I, you know, help myself or help those around around us, like there's this there needs to be this veteran movement to really help each other and to become better stewards of ourselves, our families, our communities, you know, and our jobs.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I do want to point out that, you know, what I plan to do in the future is, you know, my own thing. But I want to also do a little shout out for the Lone Survivor Foundation because they are tackling that issue as far as mental and physical health being, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: you know, both of those are important. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't necessarily cover both of those. So Mm -hmm. I just want to say check them out if you if you've never looked at their lone survivor foundation, it's doing awesome stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. How important uh, is it in your profession for people to see a chiropractor?
0: I think, I think everyone should have a, someone to constantly check on their spine. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. We do, we do checkups for every single major system of our body pretty much regularly. Yeah. No one ever checks on the spine unless something That's goes true. wrong. Yeah. Um, and, houses your central nervous system you can't replace the spine at least not yet i mean you can replace a lot of things knees elbows but you know you can't like physically replace your spine i mean you can Mm -hmm. replace segments you can replace discs um they can do a lot of amazing things but that's when something goes wrong so Mm -hmm. in my opinion i think it's it should be a part of a healthy lifestyle um and it doesn't mean you have to go every day or you have to, you know, constantly be worried about your spine, but you should be checking on it. You should have someone that you trust to uh, help you maintain it because it is the frame. I mean, it's the frame that yeah. you do everything from.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's like the craziest thing, I guess, patient you've had that have, has come in that you've had to deal with.
0: Uh I'll never forget it. So a woman from India came in with neck pain. And, you know, I was going through a history and kind of trying to figure out what why all of a sudden is your neck hurting? And I'm looking through a paperwork and there's one oh, I had a car accident when I was young. Uh, I was about 20. It was a rollover. And I was holding my baby in my arms and it rolled over. We walked away. Everything was fine. And I'm thinking to myself, so you rolled over in your car and no one got hurt. Something's not right there. Yeah, so, yeah you know, I took some X-rays uh, based on her range of motion, some red flags that I, I saw. and lo and behold, she had a very unstable fracture in her neck hmm. that to be to be fair, I mean, she could have looked fast over her shoulder and possibly killed herself. Wow, wow. Uh, it, it was I mean it was so unstable. She went into surgery almost immediately after I saw her so jeez, and she'd been walking around for 20 years with this unstable fracture the fact that she was alive was an absolute miracle like um oh, <laughs> I, I was blown away um so that's, that's the craziest one for sure like i'll never forget it because if i would have worked on her neck i could have you know caused some damage too
1: yeah uh, but, that's crazy just to like sense that too like i'm kind of curious if it's um I kind of want to hear your take on it and kind of break the stereotype of or, or more of the uh the argument like me i can crack my neck like probably i don't know like three times a day where i get stiff you know and you like kind of crack it and people are like don't do that it's
0: unhealthy you're going to
1: hurt yourself is that true
0: i mean it depends on how you're doing it if you're doing it with like normal range of motion like looking over your shoulders or bending it or just side to side forcing things or doing yeah. them fast you're probably doing more harm than good uh, the reason being is you're moving, you're probably moving the joints that are already hypermobile. Mm. Uh, the, what you're feeling, the the need to do it, um, could be that you have joints that aren't doing their job. Essentially, mm. you have some laggards up there that just need a little bit of help and that'll take some burden off of those ones that you keep popping.
1: That's it does feel good though, I... right?
0: When Even when you pop a joint that doesn't necessarily need it, it feels good, right?
1: Well, it's like when I wake up in the morning, you know, like all I like, do the side, like back crack type thing and it feels more yeah. loose and then my neck will get really stiff and it's almost that psychological, like this feels weird. And then the second I crack it, I'm like, oh, that relieved it. And yeah. there's a lot of people that do that. So I didn't know if that was like a super unhealthy thing to do or if it's just the way you do yeah.
0: it. I'd say don't force it. But if you are doing it with normal range of motion, exercise, things like that, um, it's likely not a problem. Obviously, if there's pain. Your body's trying to tell you that something's not right there. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, you guys uh, do it like insane, though. Like for people that have been to a chiropractor, you guys are good at sneaking it up on us because <laughs> you'll <laughs> be like, all right, we're going to count to three. And on one, you're like, Krush! and then I'm like, what the heck? I didn't know it could crack that much.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, sometimes people are very surprised by that. Um, I usually explain things pretty thoroughly before I do anything. but um, Especially yeah, the hip one, whatever, whatever that one's me. called.
1: What's that? Whichever, I said, especially that hip one, whatever it's called, where like you're laying on the table sideways and you put all your weight on their hip.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you definitely feel yeah. better, though, after you leave. Like, I feel way like loosen up.
0: Honestly, what? that's kind of what drove me to be a chiropractor is um, I know I was in so much low back pain and uh, I felt immediate relief with my first adjustment. Yeah. Wow. Like, honestly, I was like, what the heck did you do? How do I, how do I do that again?
1: <laughs> <laughs> how often should people be seeing a chiropractor? Like what's the healthy kind of number? I mean,
0: it's different for everybody. So it's okay. like, uh, that's up to you and your doctor. I mean, I, I see some people regularly, like a couple times a month. Mm. I see some people once a week who have, have issues that will never get better. That just need, wow. you know, they need to maintain. And mm-hmm. then I have other people that come just for wellness. I mean, mm-hmm. they know that their body functions better when they come see me regularly. And then I have people that come to me once a month. And it's a huge, huge range, really.
1: Gotcha. I need to go to a chiropractor. I know I, I do, do too. Now that we're talking yeah. about it. So uh, does my wife, filling uh, all my uh, joints. <laughs> we talk
2: about it all the time. We're like, oh, we just need to make an appointment. And then it's always like gets put on the bottom of the list because you got to make a priority.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it really is one of those things that... You don't go unless you're hurting, right? Yeah. Which is your going, you're gonna you're gonna just forget about it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah I need to go.
0: I mean, now before it's really bad, right? Yeah. I, mean, right. I, can crawl, I have people like literally crawl into my office. Jeez. Um, I'm like, how long have you been experiencing this? Uh three years. years. <laughs> <laughs> oh man.
1: Jeez. Yeah. Well I think That's as we crazy. uh you know, get towards the end and we, we start to wrap this episode with you, I want to kind of hear your sense of, you know, what was it like for, I know we kind of talked about your transition, but for other veterans out there that are transitioning and, and trying to find their way, I think this is an important topic that we like to ask many of our guests on the show is because everybody has somewhat of a different answer, but what would be like your two cents or your advice for people that are trying to find their passion or just trying to, you know, lack of a better term, reacclimate to society again?
0: I would say 100% you don't do it alone. Uh, mm-hmm. Have mentors, have a team of people that you can bounce things off of. Try new. I mean, literally go out and shadow professions that you've never um, ever even thought you would do. I mean, I never thought I would be a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it never even crossed my mind. Um, just like I never thought I'd be in the army. So it took me experiencing something new in order to to realize, wow, that that's something that's awesome. I would love to do that. I would love yeah. to be that person. Um, your passion's out there, I would say. Uh, everyone has a passion. You just got to find it. I mean, mm-hmm. and it just takes you trying new things, really. Get out yeah. of your bubble. Don't sit at home and wait for it to come to you. Go get it.
1: No, yeah, that's that's the worst thing that we kind of see people some doing is, is kind of sitting there waiting for things to jump up at them. And I just don't think that ever really happens. <laughs> And I I do have a follow up question because we do normally end and with
2: that one, but I think this one's uh, kind of important because it, it's it's different because I think you're the first person that we've talked to that's written a book, especially recently, mm. um, and you kind of have the same mentality as far as why you wrote it. Um, what specifically did you get from the process? I know you said it was pretty cathartic and everything like that, but. And we talk about how important it is for people to share their story, but maybe you can talk about some of the emotions and things that you went through as you were writing the story and why it ended up being so important and impactful for you.
0: Yeah. I think, um, even for me, even, you know, I've, I've gone through stuff in the past as far as emotions and PTSD related stuff that when I was writing the book, I realized I I quickly found out that I was avoiding certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it it was a slow thing or fast thing, but like I didn't want to admit that I could cry and it was normal. It was okay. Like, you know, I was a big tough guy. So why would I do that? Um, So I think the process of of getting it on paper, whether you write a book or not, whether it's a journal, you know, a blog post, whatever. um, I think when you, you work through your emotions like that, you're able to process it much better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I went through every emotion, like remembering the funny stuff that happened in the military stuff that I completely forgot about, you know, interviewing my buddies, like calling them and talking to them. They brought up stuff that I completely forgot about. Yeah. Um, you know, some things that I was ashamed of that I did, like I punched one of my, uh, squad members when I was overseas and, when I was looking through my photos, he had a black eye in his photo, in this photo. And I, I'm actually, I'm ashamed that I did that now at the same time, you know, I can, I can go back and process it and say, yeah, he, he may have deserved to have some form of punishment based on what was going on. But at the same time, um, I would have never, I, this, that wasn't me. That was like mm-hmm. me holding in emotions for too long. And that was me exploding. Mm -hmm. Um, so the writing process has helped me kind of process some of that stuff whether, so I don't explode anymore. Um, I'm a pretty laid back guy and I've always been that way, but writing, I think is a way to express more emotion.
1: Yeah. 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 I think anytime you put words to paper, you know, like you said, you don't have to write a book, even if you've got a sticky note on your desk and you're just writing what emotion you're feeling or you're writing down a memory that maybe you don't want to face or you don't want people to know about, but the more you put it out there, I think it just helps that, that, that self soothing and that, and that growth within yourself. Well, yeah. And
2: you know, I can only speak from my own experience, but I know the more and more that I talk about my experience and transition out of the military and stuff like that, the easier it is for me to reflect back and be like, damn, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, I've grown from it. And I know what to now tell people not to do. Mm -hmm. And I am, I guess, a better voice to explain kind of at least what I went through because I didn't Mm -hmm. talk about it or because I didn't connect with people or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, uh, and so that's what, you know, I'm setting out to do is help people share their voice and tell their story. And, Make sure that it gets recorded, even if it's you know only an hour or two, or you know a few paragraphs in a book. Like it, it it needs to get out there, and I think that's the most important part of it. And the more we can influence and and inspire people to share their story, I think honestly, the more powerful the the veteran community can be and will be.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah, I I keep saying this over and over again. People, you need to tell your stories. I mean it doesn't have to be a book Uh, you know i the book is the one that i did but for Mm -hmm. you it could be sitting in front of a camera and and recording it or you just need to get it out yeah tell somebody
3: (laughs)
2: yep i agree absolutely a vlog a blog a a, a sticky note if you have to a A phone call phone call yeah absolutely call your buddies you know talk to them on the phone and you know, that's something I've been trying to get better and better about. I still suck at it, but um, picking up the phone and actually talking to some some folks that I served with, I usually text or or, you know, message on some social media app or something like that. But um, being able to actually reconnect and through a phone call it it's just so much more meaningful and you usually unlock something that you forgot like you were saying or that you didn't realize happened or You know, whatever the case may be, because everybody, even though you went through the same thing, you still have a different perspective Mm -hmm, and you can learn something different from every person you went through the same thing with.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the best parts of writing a book was I got to call all my buddies and it gave us something to talk about. Mm
1: -hmm. We
0: haven't seen each other in years, right? Some of us hadn't seen each other in almost a decade. So um, instantly we connected Instantly. Like it was, I think most people in the military connect based on their experiences, but you know, this was fun. It was really fun yeah. to like call everyone and, and shoot the shit, so to speak.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. It's like you never left. It's uh, it's very bizarre when you can talk to somebody after a decade and it's like, you never left for whatever reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Just have more cool. gray hair.
2: that's right now you can talk trash to each other about each other's physical appearance because
1: that's usually what it devolves into (laughs) yeah always yeah well again i want everybody listening uh go check out go pre-order leave no man behind by tony brooks it's an incredible book i know dan and myself are very excited to read and you know for people that want the backstory look up operation red wings he was part of it from the army ranger side of it and i'm just uh I hope that a lot of people, you know, read your, your story and, and find success in themselves and they can kind of hear more of the untold story behind that as well. Yep.
2: Well, yeah, I I'm excited. Can't,
1: yeah. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for
2: hopping on and, uh, sharing your story and, and especially telling, you know, the, the untold side of it, um, just to get it out there and, and make sure that people understand the full picture of, of that, those few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, I served with giants really the guys that I was on that mountain with are the heroes. I mean, they were, they dragged me along. I mean, there was plenty of times where I wanted to quit. Like Mm. it was brutal. And I think if I'd been around the wrong group of people, maybe I would have, I don't know, but the guys I was around, I mean, I have a plenty of friends for still from that mountain that they're just doing great things. So if anything, read it for those guys, I was, I tried to mention everyone I possibly could in that book.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 for the fallen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tony, we can't thank you enough for just being on the show. Um, I know we've been looking forward and Dan's been looking forward to having you on, especially just two Rangers kind of shooting the shit and talking about it. And I'm excited because it, it gives me more of a backstory of an operation that I knew very lightly of, but hearing it from your perspective. And uh, again, thank you for being on. We appreciate it.
0: Uh, thanks for having me guys. I appreciate it. Of course. All right. Talk soon.